plants thrive and grow in a peaceful, nourished environment, right? Well, it's the same with human beings. But what if that environment is not so peaceful? What if it's toxic? Welcome to Coffee Break, breaking the cycle of bullying in healthcare, one cup at a time. In this podcast, you'll get practical, evidence-based strategies to help you cultivate and sustain a healthy and respectful work culture by tackling an age-old problem in healthcare, bullying and incivility. I am your host, Dr. Renee Thompson. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Coffee Break Podcast. As you know, this podcast is really designed to equip leaders with the skills and tools that they need to eradicate bullying and incivility. Because when we ignore bad behavior, bad things happen to our people. And you know, we talk a lot about well-being, but I'm going to ask the question back to you, like, what does that mean? Truly, what does well-being mean? And how does it impact everything that we do, especially in healthcare? And today, I am really excited that we have the chief wellness officer from Moffitt Cancer Center, Dr. Jennifer Bickle on our show today, who's going to talk about what does well-being really need and how you can achieve it. So Jen, thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you for being here. Absolutely, Renee. It is an absolute pleasure to have this discussion with you today. Thank you. Well, Jen and I talked about a month or so ago about well-being because she and I were both on a call. It was the Moffitt Cancer Center Hospital Board of Directors meeting, and I'm on the board of directors. And Jennifer talked about well-being, and I said, oh, I got to talk to this lady. And so we scheduled a conversation, and of course, after I heard what she was doing and just really doing some remarkable things around wellness that I knew she had to be a part of this show. And Jen works with senior leaders across her organization to ensure staff well-being is incorporated into all decisions. It's not just a little side thing that they do. She has real-world experience in assessing burnout across healthcare organizations and in developing effective evidence-based strategies to reduce clinician burnout. Her innovative strategies to improve physician and healthcare worker well-being have been nationally recognized in publications and in presentations. As an academic professor and a neurologist, see, that's why we get along, because I'm an old neuro nurse, so I love the brain. She has won awards in mentorship, leadership, and clinical program development. She currently serves as a member of the National Academy of Medicine's Action Collaborative for Clinician Wellbeing and is also a Berkeley Certified Executive Coach. So again, welcome to Coffee Break, Jen. And I have to start by asking you, how did you get involved in clinician well-being? Because when I think of a medical doctor, physician, you're taught the concrete to be objective and use the data and you're all about diagnosing and treating patients. And here you are, the chief wellness officer. How does that happen? Renee, it's so funny because you mentioned that, that shared love of neurology, right? So I'm a neurologist. Yes. And to me, this is basic neuroscience that we've got doctors, nurses, people who go into healthcare are some of the most highly trained brains out there, right? And if we really want to tap in 
to all of that knowledge, that innovation, that curiosity, that empathy, that compassion, they cannot have burned out brains, right? And so this is actually really about neuroscience optimization. And so I don't look at this as being separate than what I was trained to do. I look at this as a pure extension of taking what I learned and applying that on a system-based level, right? So we have to create environments in which we allow people's brains to work at that full potential. Wow. Right away, I thinking about the whole left brain, right brain. And I actually use this as a strategy when I'm working with leaders who are trying to be better communicators with their teams. And I always say, you have to consider that there are a percentage of people in your audience who are left brain. They're analytical, they're data-driven, they want the evidence, they want the numbers. But then you have the right brain creative people who they want the story. They want to the emotion. They want, but what you're saying is, they're really the same, like they're two halves of the same brain. Yep. Yes. That's pretty powerful. Absolutely. And one of the things about wellness, kind of getting to what you're talking about there, is how do you message it for stakeholder buy-in based on how they attribute value, right? And so for some people, they need everything about burned out turned into data, which I do a lot of data. I show the data about turnover. I show the data about intent to leave. I show the data connecting the burnout. But then there's also the storytelling and about the importance of this. And the truth is that we have all been in the room at some point with a doctor who was maybe doing everything right, but they weren't quite there, right? They weren't quite present with us, right? Or the nurse who seems to come in and give the medications, but isn't quite present, isn't quite there. We sometimes know through those stories that we've experienced what burnout feels like, even if we don't know the definition, right? And we can see how it's affected the care that we've received as patients and our family has received. But we can also see it in our colleagues. But then there's also plenty of data. Yes. And to your point, we have that data to support why this should be a strategic priority. Uh, However, mixed in with that, you have to share the stories. It can't just be something data-driven. You have to share those stories too, because as human beings, we are both. But I do have to ask you this question because this comes up all the time. It comes up with a lot of the work that we do with culture work. And we do a lot of, we, we call it our like culture change initiative or department culture change initiative, where we actually go into an organization. We work hip to hip with the leadership team and then their entire team. And it's only been, I would say, within the last two or three years that we've really involved physicians and providers right from the beginning. And that's a whole other conversation. However, this is what I have learned throughout my 32 plus years as a nurse. Physicians deal with their own issues in their way. Nurses, if there's a problem, they have their issues and they have their strategies that they tackle and pharmacy tackles their problems. And we are still so incredibly siloed in healthcare. So how do you take something as broad as well-being and make sure it's not a, if you're a physician and you're burned out, we have this program for you. But if you're a nurse and you're burned out, oh, we have something. How do you make sure that it's all part under the same umbrella? I think that this is incredibly complex, and I think that this is rooted in a lot of the ways in which we trained our professions and in which we sometimes alienate each other. 
I, I have to share that I was raised by nurses. My mom's a nurse, grandma's a nurse, my two older sisters are nurses, right? I think that for me, it was always about the the nobility of being in healthcare, right? The honor of being in healthcare. And so I've always worked in multidisciplinary settings. That being said, is that what I always think about it is the fact that well-being is a right to everybody in the organization, no matter what their role. But that doesn't mean the approach is the same for everybody, right? But what it does mean is that we can be specific in the fact that this role comes with these certain injuries, right? This role comes with these certain risks. How do we provide support for that is tailored, but is not elite, right? And I think that sometimes we get confused, right? Because I think that sometimes we say, well, what we do for a pharmacist won't work for a nurse because a nurse has this specific needs, or what works for a nurse won't work for a physician because a physician has this specific need. So when we talk about well-being or burnout, there's a lot of passion there. And I think that sometimes people respond with that kind of first emotional reaction of, but that won't work for us. But I And I think then when we attempt to make the things the same for everybody in the organization, then we do miss the injuries that are specific to some of our roles, right? Like, all of us experience moral stress and moral injury, but it pops up in different ways and in different situations, sometimes based on our roles. So one of the things that I try to do is try to be specific about what area does is there a gap in, right? So for example, we had a healthy workforce already in place for the nursing, but we didn't have a robust one in place for the physicians in the APPs, right? So there were some gaps that were needed there. Some of our programming is for every single team member. Some of it is more geared towards people that are uh, more patient-facing because of some of the risks and some of the learnings that are necessary for that. And then some are a little bit more role-specific. One other thing I think is so important to share in this is that the approaches that individuals need might sometimes be different. Like, for example, you were talking about that data-minded person, right? So for some people, it might be the fact that they need the research behind something before they're going to listen to it. So we have to be careful that when we are communicating the value of this and when we're trying to promote engagement, that sometimes we think about, like, for example, offering things at the seventh grade reading level is incredibly important in some degrees for being inclusive. But that's not necessarily going to get you the buy-in of, of professionals, right? So we have to sometimes be clear in what we're trying to do is communicate, right, and to get people to demonstrate the value. The other component of it that's really important is that though we may sometimes have different drivers and solutions to our burnout, we all suffer, all human beings suffer. And whenever any group thinks that they're unique in their suffering, there turns into this sense of persecution, which in turn makes the suffering even worse. And I'm sure, Renee, I, I have no doubt that you've seen this, right? And it's not always doctor versus nurses or social work versus whatever. Sometimes it might be the fourth floor unit versus the fifth floor unit, or it might be night shift versus the day shift, right? That that people sometimes get this narrative that we are the only ones who dot, dot, dot. That is the danger of becoming too isolated in our misery. Hey there, did you know that workplace bullying and incivility are on the rise, causing burnout, turnover, and poor patient outcomes, yet, Organizations don't always do a good job equipping 
leaders and their teams with the knowledge, skills, and tools and resources they need to address workplace bullying and incivility. I mean, it's a huge problem that without a solution is likely to worsen. Well, the good news is at the Healthy Workforce Institute, this is what we do. We equip leaders and their teams with everything they need to cultivate a healthy, respectful, and professional work culture free from bullying and incivility. Now, if bullying and incivility are a problem in your organization and you are ready to do something about it, contact us at wecare at healthyworkforceinstitute.com. We'll schedule time to chat, and figure out what makes the most sense for you. Together, we can make healthcare a kinder, more respectful and healthier workplace. Looking forward to chatting with you. Wow, you said so many things that just ticked off the boxes in my brain and my experience. And so I'm gonna try to remember a few of them. What you're basically saying is this can't be a cookie cutter. You can't say wellness for everyone. Everybody, we're going to follow this program. And I don't even like to necessarily call it a program because it all, almost makes it sound like there's a start and a stop. Or, yeah, just go through this and everything will be great, really built into the strategic priorities in, in, in a different way other than a program. So it can't just be a cookie cutter but you have to allow for the uniqueness of everybody's role because everybody's role is different. I even think about that support staff, that nursing assistant who has to meet the demands of, I mean, imagine all the nurses, they're getting pulled in so many different directions, the physicians, they, and it's not to say that they can't say no, but the burden on them is just a little bit different or, or that burnout shows up a little differently than a nurse. Then I think about a physician, an intern, a resident, the attending, the person who's on call, it just, it shows up differently. So I so appreciate that your approach to wellness and well-being recognizes that everyone suffers burnout in some way, but every role has their unique little piece that what you're doing is you're talking about it, you're incorporating it into the strategies that you're implementing. And, and then just the other piece, the, the whole, everybody thinks their job is harder than the other person's job, whether it's day shift, night shift, whether it's, the, and this is something that that does bother me. So if you're listening to this and you've said this or you've heard this, please address this, that this hospital could not function without their nurses. The nurses do way more than the physicians do. And then I've heard the opposite. We don't necessarily need nurses. We could do all of this ourselves. We're physicians. And it's almost as though you're, there's a competition for who has it harder, who, has, who does more work, I try to remind people it's just a different role. The physician role is different than the nurse role, but it requires both. It requires a day shift and a night shift. It requires the IC, the neuro ICU, the neuro step down and the neuro med search department to care for these patients. And I hear that all the time. And it's just interesting that you brought up that issue because I, I see it so frequently. So how do you 
mitigate that? How do you then, what are some of the strategies that you have incorporated, especially at Moffitt? And where do you even begin? So if you could talk a little bit about some of your strategies, that would be great. These are all important questions, right? And one of the things that I've noticed, and I actually noticed this about myself, and I figured this out through through counseling, right, is that, that in healthcare, we have a tendency towards self-sacrifice, right? And that's how we serve. We sacrifice ourselves and we serve. But the truth is, is that sometimes that can be really close to martyrdom, right? And I think that sometimes when we hear those statements of, I am the only, we are the only, right? I think that sometimes that's, comes from the sense of excessive self-sacrifice that they're not sure other people are sacrificing as much, right? And so, and, and I think that is sometimes reminiscent of the cultural piece that can happen. So where to even begin and where to even start? This is the great thing about burnout is that there's so many different drivers and there's so many different problems. That means that there's so many different ways to solve it. And so one of the things that I think is just important for anyone to listen is to, to know, and then I'll talk a little bit about what we do, but just something that's really important that is really important in people's mindsets with this is that a lot of times when you start anything for wellness, there's going to be a, that's not it. That's not important enough. That's not it. Do this, right? If you just paid me more, if this just happened more, if this happened more, right? So any movement forward in wellness is going to be met with some skepticism because anything you do in wellness can't possibly hit all of the different drivers at any given time. But that's okay because if we don't act, that's not an option. We have to act and we all have to act in a way that is within our sphere of influence. It's not just pointing the finger and saying what other people should do, but that what can I do? What can I act and a basic fundamental thing to know is, and to really remember, is that we cannot control other people's well-being. We can only optimize the opportunity for well-being, right? And so I share that before we even start talking about some of these things, because it's really important to understand that, that no matter what great idea somebody has, there's going to be somebody else who says that's not it, right? There are frameworks to use out there, and we'll talk more about those, but but. Uh, to stay within your sphere of influence and understand that what we're doing is trying to optimize the opportunity for well-being, not give someone or control well-being. Uh, Jen, do you think it comes from a place, because I've heard this all the time and I talk to the leaders all the time and they're so worried about their staff that they feel like it's their responsibility to fix this problem, to fix their burnout. And I know myself, and you're probably the same, we are fixers. If you work in healthcare, chances are you're a fixer. You want to solve the problem. But what you're saying is you can't come at it from that perspective. You, you can't be paralyzed by perfection to the point where nobody does anything. And you cannot take on someone else. You can't take on that burden. But as you said, create the opportunities for well-being to occur. And um, I, I just love that perspective. And so if you're listening to this and you're one of those leaders who worries and it keeps you up at night, you know, the well-being of your team, we're giving you permission to stop beating yourself up. Yep. Absolutely. Great. Love Absolutely. It. One of the things I say, Renee, all the time is that this isn't about me. Yeah. Right. This isn't about me and my need to fix, right? These are not my patients, Right. This is an environment in which I'm trying to move the needle to be able to improve things, right? And so you were asking specifically about how do we become more aware of what each other's going through, right? How do we 
raise up. We work in units, we work in teams, and, and sometimes day after day, it can be isolating even when we don't know it, right? Yeah. When I think about the people who are, oh my gosh, like I, I just have to share that throughout my career, I've always been like, it used to be eight months wait to get in to see me. And the amount of people that would yell at my staff to get in, right? And I was just like, why would they? And then they would be so polite to me, right? And and those are the sorts of things just that just I've always been mindful and in, in thinking about those different roles. But one of the things is that you've probably heard about this, and a lot of the listeners might have this at the organizations, but to be aware of it is Schwartz Rounds is the opportunity to bring a multidisciplinary panel together and talk about different, maybe either a case or different themes. And one of the biggest benefits we see out of that is people saying, oh my gosh, I had no idea a surgeon would feel that way. Or I didn't realize that a researcher would also feel that way. Or she seems so powerful. I'm surprised that this is happening, right? Or I didn't realize that that the patients affected EDS so much, right? So it's through those experiences that we get to be inspired by each other, but then also understand a little bit more about how there are so many people here that are connected to that mission and, and connected to their purpose here. Um, so we have about 300 people attend each one of those, right? And the topics range from the most recent one we did was creating safe spaces about leaders' own journals and some of their ups and downs and how they've learned to create the safe spaces, which is never a final destination, right? It's an ongoing work. But then also just a couple months ago, we had a very powerful session about how suicide has impacted me. And our EVP of research, Dr. John Cleveland himself, actually shared his story around experiencing a, a colleague's suicide and how he had to receive counseling and help afterwards and all these important things, right? So one of the big things I believe, and this is for all the leaders out there, you cannot expect your people to show vulnerability and your people to practice self-care unless you're modeling it. So when those leaders think, what is the best thing I can sometimes do for my people? Sometimes it's the leaders actually saying, this is what I did to take care of myself last night. This is how I turned this off. I've realized that I'm not going to be able to fix this situation, so I'm going to just try to work on accepting it, right? Because when we see our leaders excessively working and excessively doing, that makes us think that we should continue to do it more, even if they're trying to tell us to take time off. You said something very powerful, and it really spoke to me because this is something that I became aware of probably over the last few months. And in one of our previous podcasts, we talked about this burnout with leaders and how you can't tell your team, you need to take care of yourself, you need self-care and take days off and do all that. If you're talking about how, because I used to say this, I've, I've had this company for 12 years. I used to say, I've never taken a full day off. I've never, uh, even on holidays, I get up in the morning for a couple of hours and I thought, what am I doing? I'm telling my team, did you take time off? I want to make sure you're not working in the evenings on the weekends. I'm like, oh, I work every day. I can't, I no longer do that. And you talked about martyrdom before. I thought, oh my gosh, am I doing that? It's a little painful to turn that mirror back on yourself to see how you're contributing to that. But even this weekend, I spent the whole weekend, I had family in and we had a wonderful weekend. And I, chose not to feel guilty that I wasn't at my house working because I thought, no, I have to take care of myself if I'm going to be a good leader for my team. And that's exactly what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you can't be bragging about how busy you are and how you never take any time off. Well-being is important to us here. It doesn't work. Right. And so, Renee, you are. thank you for sharing that because there are there's so many people listening that I'm sure experience the exact same thing, right? And of course, I've had to go through my aha moments of, oh, 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 gosh, right? Like my husband being like, you do know how much you work. But I'm like, oh, I have four kids. So in trying to stay present and not always be off of my mind thinking. When it is a process, it is not perfect. But you also mentioned this guilt of this discomfort and that sometimes we're working actually to avoid that discomfort. But sometimes we just have to, like a lot of things in life, sometimes we have to be allow ourselves to be uncomfortable. Sometimes we have to allow those things to happen. And sometimes our imposter syndrome speaks up and we wonder, well, if I'm going to achieve this, maybe I shouldn't. And the other part to it too is there's this concept that's called self-valuation and and been studied predominantly in physicians by a Mickey Trokel out of Stanford. And and it really resonates with me. But self-valuation is two components. One is prioritization of self-care. And the second is self-compassion, right? So it asks questions such as, I gave up taking care of my own health due to my patient's needs, right? Or questions such as when I made a mistake, I felt more self-condemnation than forgiveness, right? And it's basically those two components is self-care prioritization and self-compassion. And at least when it's been studied in physicians, we are far lower than the general public in self-valuation. And that correlates very nicely with the increased risk of burnout. So this gets to what I talk about is in medicine and healthcare is a silent curriculum against self-care, and so we say, do this, but if you watch, well, then you're going to see that I don't do these things. Right. And that again becomes that silent heading curriculum. Yeah. It's just like anything else. So your parents, your teacher, your boss, it's, we're not going to listen to what you say, but we'll listen to what you do. And if, and you've shared this throughout that even being, and I'll, I'll just call it being a little vulnerable because we never think of that cardiothoracic thoracic surgeon or that neurosurgeon having any doubt about themselves or having those moments where they don't feel that they're doing a, a good job and I'll just keep it general in that way or nothing impacts them. They they have a, I'll never forget when I was a neuroscience nurse, there was, we would always get, we were stepped down. So we would always get the patients post-op and we were brain tumors, head traumas and strokes. And I'll never forget this young boy. He was beautiful. He was 18 years old. And I walked in to talk to the family. The mother, father, and his sister were sitting there. And I always started out this way. So tell me what you know about the surgery and about the type of tumor that he has. And it was an astrocytoma. And it was in an area like and they said, well, they said they got a lot of it and that he would be okay. And I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, oh my, I know that your son probably won't be alive in the next year. How do I know this? But you're his parents and you don't know this. I didn't feel the right to know this before they did. And then I, I do realize that or recognize that the physician, the surgeon may have said exactly what it was, but they heard what they wanted to hear. But I didn't know that. I had to leave the room. Because I was starting to starting to become overcome with emotion, maybe because I had a daughter who was 18 years old too at the same time. But for all of us, and that's why I really 
so appreciate the Schwartz rounds. And I'm actually going to put a link to that in the show notes. So if anybody doesn't know what it is, they can click on the link and learn more about it. But it gives voice to the struggles, the internal challenges and struggles and the fears and the vulnerabilities that we face in healthcare. But I almost feel like we have to be on stage all the time in front of the team or in front of our patients. We have to be on it. But there's this whole back end sort of churning that happens that allows you to actually talk about it. Absolutely. And that's the thing is that short rounds are one of the many ways of holding space in an organization to talk about these things that happen. And that's when I think about with leaders, what are another series we have is the Chief Wellness Office series, where every month we hit a different topic that's common in healthcare, whether it be moral distress, identifying burnout, mental health stigma. And we have about 30 minutes where we talk about some of the oh, some of the research and the practical applications of it. But then we have 30 minutes of open discussion. And we typically have between 100 and 150 people live, multidisciplinary show up and be a part of those conversations and those themes that, that commonly affect us in healthcare. I also think that sometimes leaders, this goes back to, Renee, what you were saying earlier and the fact that we want to fix things. So when we have people, and not just leaders, right? This is all of us, right? Because that's, I mean, you don't go into healthcare because you're not trying to help people, right? So we always want to help them. But sometimes we actually just need to hold space for them to process and to go back to their own sense of resiliency and to really tap back in. A lot of times people are not coming to us for us to solve their problems. They're coming for us just to have that space, just to be able to put it out there and to then get back to that place. And so there's a, a, so sometimes that can be unnatural for us because, for example, let's say that there was a, a bad patient event and a nurse comes to you and is upset that maybe the first thing that you might say is, well, that's not your fault. You don't have to worry about that. So right there, we've made a, a judgment call about how that person should feel. And so we've actually closed the space, right? But in that attempt, we think that we're helping, but actually we've closed that space. And so what's incredibly important is that there are skill sets. And so stress first aid, for example, psychological first aid or stress first aid is now being taught more. It comes from military background, but it's being taught more in organizations. We're rolling it out here more over the next year in order to teach people how to hold that space when someone is stressed and just needs Yeah, they just need somebody to listen to them. I've been learning this and I would say I'm paying more attention when somebody reaches out to me in some type of stressful state. And I'll just use the example with my daughters. I have two grown daughters and my oldest daughter has two young kids. And so she'll frequently, and she's a little dramatic, I'm just saying, and she'll contact me and it's like, she's upset there's something going on and right away I want to fix it I'm like oh well just do these three things and you'll be fine and I learned this over the years that people don't always want you to solve their problem they just want either comfort because now my daughters know this and they'll say mom I'm not looking for you to solve the problem I, I just need comfort okay can you just comfort me please sometimes they just need that space as you said just to have somebody hear them and to listen and not immediately try to solve it or tell them it wasn't your fault. So don't let it upset you. And to your point, you can't tell somebody how they should feel. And leaders having, and it sounds like what you're doing is really creating, you're being deliberate 
about creating those spaces with how you're showing up every month with the Schwartz rounds and the other, what did you call it? Where you have the chief wellness series. I love that you're providing them something of value. You're probably some data and evidence and all of that related to that topic, but then you're giving people space to talk, which I think people are hungry for that right now. Absolutely. And when these are some of the most important ways that we change that culture, right? And provide some of those tailored resiliency supports. But there's one other big aspect that I want to make sure to cover. And that's the thing is that people who go into healthcare, part of the way that we're paid is, of course, our salary, right? But one of the ways that we're paid is through the meaning in our work, the connection with our patients. And so whenever we're taken away from the meaning in our work, away from what gives us joy, that increases the risk of burnout. So we might have a great leader, we might have a great culture, but if a nurse is spending all day doing paperwork or a doc is spending all day doing prior authorizations, then they, you decrease that meaning and you actually decrease one of their currencies, one of the ways that they're paid, right? And so we have to be, as we think about this, it is upon the responsibility of systems and leaders to make sure that we're looking at workflow efficiencies, not as a nice thing to have, but as a retainment tool to burnout for to reduce burnout, right? So we have to be mindful whenever we implement a program, what are we de-implementing? Whenever we ask an essential healthcare worker to do non-essential work, why? What is important about it? What do we have to do? How are we using a human factors approach when we're dual designs, right? So we have to, all of these things, basically going back to that top of the license, meaningful work is incredibly important. And for leaders who are interested in cold thinking about those things, that there's a lot of different frameworks out there. I have to mention the National Academy of Medicine National Plan is fantastic. But the IHI also has a great framework for being able for local leaders to be able to do rounds and ask people about how they find joy in their job and then to help them to work in areas in which that joy is more likely to occur. So we have to just remember that our, we are fueled, we get our energy by purpose. And so we have to maintain not just culture, not just resiliency support, but purpose. And you're bringing up a, a topic that actually my team and I have been focused on the last couple of years is all the work that we do. So think about yourself as a physician and all the tasks of doing your work, okay? A nurse, everything. I, I think about my company and my team and everything that they do and get really clear on what are those things that bring you joy? We call it, I've learned this from a, a coaching program that I've been in, it's your desire zone. What's in your desire zone versus what's in your drudgery zone? And your drudgery zone may be somebody else's desire zone. But I, it's so important that we take a look at the work that's being done and take a step back and say, is this the best use of this person's time? As you said, some of the paperwork and documentation, I've been reading and, and watching a little bit more about how AI can help or virtual healthcare professionals can take some of that burden because I don't know about Anyone who's listening who's ever had to do an admission assessment on a patient or discharge teaching, I would gladly take another patient if someone else would do all that paperwork for me because it, it, it can be grueling. But how can we be a little bit more innovative? But getting back to what you're talking about, 
you have to at least start asking those questions to be able to even consider, is there a different way of doing this so that people get back to, and I'll say what's in their desire zone, but what is bringing them joy, the meaning? People get, don't get into healthcare to get rich. They get, a, they get involved in healthcare to, to make a difference, to really see that patient come in with problems and leave with improvement so that they can be a functional in their lives again. And if, if you're a, an executive in an organization and you're listening to this and you're not having conversations about this, you're missing a big piece of what it means to, to have wellness and well-being. So important. All right, as we wrap up, Jen, if let's say there's a leader who's listening right now who has nothing in place, their well-being, wellness, we don't even know what that word is. I don't know. Is there anything that you would recommend they do if they wanted to start down this path that we've talked about today? I think that's a fantastic question because I think that we're at a point right now in healthcare that you no longer have to convince people well-being matters, but now people are like, okay, but what do we do? What does that look like? And I will tell you that the, the worst thing that people can do is I say that misinformed wellness initiatives are anti-wellness. So when someone just says, okay, I know what we're going to do. We'll go ahead and plan this potluck and it'll solve, it'll do these things, right? So one of my, one of the first things that leaders need to do is really to step back and say, what do I know about this, right? Instead of moving through with this, because there is a field out there, there's evidence to be learned, right? So there are frameworks out there, whether it be the AMA, Joy in Medicine Framework, the, the IHI, Finding Joy in the Workplace, or the National Academy of Medicine National Plan. You don't have to spend a lot of time just to be able to look at those. And all of them have concrete examples of evidence-based programs that can be implemented. So my first thing is don't just brainstorm and think about something to do, right? But be able to actually look to the literature a little bit more and look about what could be successful. I think the other component of it goes back to one of the things that I was saying at the very beginning is that wellness is not about telling other people what they should do. And if you're listening and you're like, shoot, I haven't really prioritized my own wellness, then if that's not the case, then frankly, you don't, you really shouldn't be starting with anybody else's until you've started with yourselves, right? Like I, I one time was teaching a seminar and had about 40 executives in the room and they were frustrated that nobody was ever using the yoga classes. Nobody was ever using the meditation, right? And by the way, there's no shortage of unused wellness programs, right? So that's the whole thing is that it's not about building another program always. And so, but I asked the room if anybody in the room had ever used one of those programs and none of them had. It had not even occurred to any of them to use it, right? And so starting with yourself, and starting with understanding that this is a field that has evidence and has solutions and has frameworks, and then looking into those and seeing what in this is my sphere of control? Do I want to focus on top of the license mobile work? Do I want to focus on a culture, right? Do I want to focus on making sure that my people have resiliency support, right? There's so many different areas that an individual could focus on. I'm hesitant to say what the number one step should be because we're all at different parts on that spectrum, right? But maybe if I were to simplify it, the number one step would be learn more about what wellness is and what it isn't and take care of yourself, 
Yeah, that is incredible advice because I'm one of them who I just want, give me a step one, two, three, so I could do it and then check it off. And you, you can't do that. You can't do that with bullying and incivility and culture change and all the work. In, when we work with groups, we tell them it's going to take a year to get to this place where people like bullying and incivility are immediately rejected and kindness and respect and professionalism are now the new norm. And I tell them all the time, you have to trust the process. You can't start fixing the problem before you actually take a step back and evaluate the problem. And that's what you're saying. And so true for wellness and looking at your team's well-being. And it really does start with you. And so I, I just want to thank you for being here, for sharing your knowledge and what you've learned over the years, especially in your role. And I'm so grateful for organizations like Moffitt Cancer Center. And I know there are many out there who have actually put a stake in the ground to say, this is important to us and we're going to put the resources behind it to make sure that we create, and I'm going to use your words, the opportunity for people to improve their well-being. But I think especially now, it's always been important, but especially now. So I just want to thank you for being a guest here and for sharing your wisdom. We will have ways that you can connect with Jen in the show notes. We'll have her LinkedIn profile. You can connect with her and see all the great work that she's done. We'll have her Twitter handle that you can connect with her. And we'll put some of the other links in the show notes, Schwartz Rounds and some of the other initiatives and organizations that, that Jen recommended. And I just want to end by thanking all of you listeners who have carved out a little piece of your time to really take a look at how you can cultivate and sustain a healthy work culture and just end with a reminder to all of you that bullying and civility and burnout happen because they can. And it takes dedicated leaders like all of you to do something to actually address it and help to cultivate a, a healthier work culture. So thanks everyone for being here and take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to Coffee Break, breaking the cycle of bullying in healthcare one cup at a time. If you found these practical strategies helpful, we invite you to click the subscribe button and tune in every other week. For more information about our show and how we work with healthcare organizations to cultivate and sustain a healthy work culture free from bullying and incivility, visit healthyworkforceinstitute.com. Until our next cup of coffee, be kind, take care, and stay connected.